Jesus has promised to be with his church one day in full glory. This is what we will study in this episode of Through the Word. Hi, I'm Adam Burton. I'm the pastor at Central Baptist Church in Maysville, Kentucky. Every Thursday, I release a new Bible study that comes from the Gospel Project, where we go chronologically through the entire Bible to see how all of Scripture points to Jesus. You can watch Through the Word on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, as well as our website at cbcmaysville.com. You can also subscribe to the Through the Word audio podcast in your favorite podcasting app. Would you do me a favor? Would you rate and review our podcast in Apple Podcasts? It helps with the, the algorithm and, and it gets more people to see our podcast. Well, are you ready? Let's study the Bible. Revelation is unique among the books of the Bible. As the closing book of the Bible, it brings together a variety of literary genres, from letters to churches to psalms of praise, the descriptive prose, and of course, all the apocalyptic imagery of John's vision. Much of the symbolism of Revelation is confusing to modern readers, which is one reason there is such a wide range of views on the best way to read and understand and apply this book. A century ago, G.K. Chesterton quipped, and though St. John, the evangelist, saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. You know, some readers find the book so strange they'll leave it unread. Something to hurry through or perhaps at the end of a year-long Bible reading plan. But for others, the, the strangeness is itself the draw, especially since so many interpreters through the years have seen in this book a, a glimpse of what God has planned for the future. In either case, whether Revelation proves fascinating or frightening to you, the truth is this. God inspired this book, and as part of God's Word, it is well worth our time of, of study and devotion. In this study, we begin a four-part journey through Revelation that leads us to the end of the Bible and the return of Christ. We begin with the revelation of Jesus' glory that opens the book, a vision of Jesus, the Son of God, who has all the authority over all time, death and hell. This Jesus, excellent and awe-inspiring in His splendor, is present among His people offering us, through His Spirit, hope and confidence, no matter how many challenges we face in our mission. Here's our first point. Jesus reveals Himself in glory. Read with me, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 through 16. John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to um, Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamb stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame on fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Revelation isn't primarily a vision about the future. It's a vision of Jesus, who he is in his glory, what he has done to bring salvation, and what he will do upon his return. That's why the book begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the end times. See, the focus from the very beginning remains on Jesus. The context for John's writing is important. See, as a brother and partner, this letter came from a man who was part of God's people and had shared not only in their kingdom mission, but also experienced something of the affliction and suffering that being faithful to Jesus requires. In fact, he was on the island of Patmos, likely having been exiled as a criminal for following Jesus. Now, why does this context matter? Well, because John wasn't writing to satisfy intellectual curiosities about the future of the planet. His point wasn't to provide his readers with charts and graphs that explain every detail of the timetable for the Lord's return. Now, it is true that one purpose of this revelation was to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And scholars have long debated what events, past, present, or future, are being described here. But primarily, this revelation was to bring encouragement and exhortation to God's people by showing Jesus as the Son of God in all His glory and to remind the people that in the end, Jesus wins. All the kingdoms of this world will be as nothing in comparison with the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, why is it important to remember the original context of John's writing this letter? What would happen if we ignored this context? Well, the original context matters so that we don't engage merely in speculation about what this passage means to me before considering what it would mean to the original hearers. If we ignore this context, we could learn a lot about the book's details, yet miss the main point and purpose. John heard a loud voice and then saw a mysterious figure, one like a son of man. Now, this figure was described with language from the Old Testament, from the prophet Daniel, another book with ap uh, apocalyptic imagery. Now, there the son of man approaches the ancient of days, God himself, who has hair like pure wool and eyes like flaming torches. 
Now, what's striking about John's description of Jesus in this vision is that he uses imagery from the Old Testament referring to God himself. The Son of Man is the Son of God. Now, also noteworthy is how the imagery points to the threefold identity of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Coming from the mouth of the Son of Man is a sharp two-edged sword, which likely represents the Word of God. And Jesus is the one who, as the prophet, speaks the truth in ways that cut to the heart, wounding our pride in order to heal us of our sin. The robe with the golden sash around his chest resembles the clothing of the priest in the Old Testament. Jesus is our great high priest who gave his life on our behalf and who now intercedes for us before the Father. And in all of this description, we see the kingship of Jesus, identified here with imagery of the Ancient of Days, the King of Glory, who is worthy of our worship. Check out this essential doctrine, Jesus' deity. Within the person of Jesus Christ, there are two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. Now, Scripture teaches He is fully divine and fully human. His divinity is on display in passages that describe Him as being equal with God. The New Testament also points to the deity of Christ by showing how He possesses attributes that God alone possesses how He performs works that only God performs, and how He Himself claims to be the Son of God. Here's our second point. Jesus reveals His authority over time, death, and hell. Read with me. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead, But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, what was John's response when when he saw this magnificent vision of Jesus? He fell flat on his face. Now, we shouldn't be surprised. Throughout the scriptures, when people come into contact with God and His glory, they, they fall into worship, undone because of their sinfulness, stunned at His holiness and magnificence and fear for their lives. But here we see a touch of grace that coincides with this revelation of the fiery God of the glory in the sun. Jesus gave John a comforting hand and comforting words. Fear not. Isaiah was undone when he received a vision of God in the temple. Moses bowed in worship on Mount Sinai. And Peter, James, and John collapsed in fear at the voice of God the Father on the mountain of transfiguration. When Jesus was transformed before their eyes. Now, interestingly, Jesus comforted his disciples with a a touch and the words, Have no fear. The same Jesus who touched lepers and opened the eyes of the blind. The same Jesus who touched, healed the the woman with the issue of blood and raised the dead to life, extended his hand to John. What a beautiful act of gentle authority from our great Savior. 
here we, we see the majesty of God combined with the mercy of God as the transcendent God of the universe leans forward to touch his frail human trembling at his feet. See, if we emphasize only Christ's majesty, we will feel like he is distant and unapproachable, perhaps too unlike us to be able to relate. But his mercy, if we lose a sight of his holiness and, and we can easily make him into our image. See, the reason Jesus can say fear not is connected to what comes next. I am the first and the last. Now, don't miss the fact that Jesus once again has used an I am statement. Just as Moses fell on his face before God on Mount Sinai, John here was on his face before the Lord Jesus with, when the great I am revealed himself as the first and the last. And that means Jesus is the one who has all authority and power over time itself. But it's not just time, it's also death and hell that must fall before the conquering king. Jesus is the living one who has gone through death and, and come out on the other side with all authority given to him. You know, we think of death as the end of life, but for Jesus, death was a new beginning. Through his death, Jesus overcame the power of the evil one. And when he came out of the grave as one who was dead but is now alive forever, he defeated death, our greatest enemy. Now, for all of us in Christ, our end of life is also just the beginning of a new chapter in which Jesus, not death, has the last word. No wonder then that Jesus, with his glorious scarred hand, could raise John from being like a dead man. That's what Jesus has done with each of us too. When we encounter the living God, through his word, we are undone by his majesty and holiness. We recognize our unworthiness and our sinfulness. And, and in humility and repentance, when we fall on our faces, Jesus, the one who lifts the head of the humble and exalts the poor in spirit, extends his hand that bear the scars of love, united to the living one. We too share in his victory over sin, death, and hell. We too share in his immortality, knowing that death will not have the last word on us. We too share in his holiness, knowing that his sacrifice covers our sin and his righteousness is counted as ours. Check out this essential doctrine, Christ's exaltation. Whereas the death of Christ was the ultimate example of his humiliation, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is the first and glorious example of Christ's exaltation. Christ was exalted when God raised him from the dead, and Christ was exalted when he ascended to the Father's right hand. He will be exalted by all creation when he returns. All of these aspects work together to magnify the glory and worth of Christ, resulting in the praise of the glory of his grace in rescuing sinners. Here's our last point. Jesus reveals his presence among his churches. Read with me, Revelation chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, 
and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. See, Jesus was revealed in his glory among the seven golden lampstands. The point here is one that, that John wanted to stress for his original audience. The king of glory is present with his people. We are known to him and he is known to us. No matter what the circumstances may be, Jesus knows his people and he is devoted to caring for us. The darkness of the, the world, the oppressive powers and principalities that manifest themselves in governments that, that seek to thwart the spread of the gospel, the sins and transgressions that continue to batter our hearts as we pursue holiness, the suffering of tragedies that threaten to overtake us, all of these are no match for the glorious king who stands amid the lampstands and cares for the churches. Although Revelation contains many strange images, John helps us understand what some of the most important symbols mean. In this case, we are told that the seven lampstands mentioned at the beginning of John's vision represent seven churches, each of whom will receive a letter in the coming chapters. Now, while the seven stars represent the angels or messengers, as the word in the original Greek should be taken either way, of the seven churches. Now, many interpreters consider the significance of the number seven here, known as the number of perfection, to refer to all the churches in the world. Now, some take the significance of angels to refer to the fact that Jesus is actively, both directly and also through angelic beings, looking after his people. And considering these perspectives, we, we should remember, however, that John's immediate concern would have been his first readers. See, Jesus was revealed as past among the seven golden lampstands, or I'm sorry, he was revealed as present among the seven golden lampstands, which is the seven churches. Now, in what ways should our belief that Jesus is present and, and with and committed to his people shape our worship? Well, we know that we are not alone. We are not forgotten. We can sing to him, cry to him, and pray to him because he hears us. We remind each other of his presence and we are discouraged or, or are just struggling in our faith. Now, the churches here are described as lampstands. Now, why lamps? Well, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are the light of the world. Our good works are to shine before others so that people will give glory to our Father in heaven. When we spread the truth of the gospel with our words and when we back up the gospel with actions that correspond with our words, then others see the light of Christ and are drawn to him. Jesus' presence among the lampstands indicates that, that he is committed to ensuring that we shine his light in the world. We are tasked with the mission of proclaiming his kingdom. But Jesus hasn't left us alone. Hey, check out this quote. The preaching of the church is true and steadfast, in which one on the same way of salvation is shown throughout the whole world. For to her is entrusted the light of God. For the church preaches the truth everywhere, and she is the seven-branched candlestick that bears the light of Christ. Light produces more than one reaction. 
Some love the darkness more than the light because their deeds are evil. The light of Christ, shining through the lampstands of his church, draws some people to faith while causing others to risk being exposed. The true church that is shining faithfully will always cause a reaction in the world, both drawing and repelling. When he gave us the Great Commission, Jesus told us that he is with us always to the end of the age. The same God who was with us in the Garden of Eden, who became God with us in the manger in Bethlehem, and who is God for us by going to the cross to win the victory over sin and death. This is the same God who stands among the lampstands, ensuring that the light of the gospel will not go out. What does Jesus' presence with us mean for the church as we seek to be faithful to his mission? Well, we know that we are not laboring on our own. We know that Jesus will be faithful to bring fruit from our lives. We don't have to be frightened or scared since we are dependent upon him for success. We trust that, that he will keep us faithful and we, when we are tempted to stray. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. He is the center of attention throughout this book. The vision of John opens with the Son of Man in majesty and glory, standing among the lampstands that represent his church. Now, our mission is to spread the good news of Jesus, to shine the light of goodness and grace in a world in need of God's truth. And no matter how bad the circumstances may be, John, our partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom are, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. It encourages us to look to, the, to Jesus, the, the living one, who has already won the, the victory and who will be present with us to the end. Because Jesus came to dwell with us and in doing so provide our salvation, we trust that Jesus is present with us today as we seek to fulfill his mission. So what's next? You know, the Bible tells us to be doers of the word. So how are you going to apply the truths of God's word to your life this week? Here are some questions to get you thinking. What are some ways that you can remind yourself this week that Jesus has the power over time, death, and hell? How can you encourage people in your church who may be struggling to remain faithful under difficult circumstances? Who do you know who needs the light of Christ? And how can you or your church invite or minister to them? Check out this quote. He is a God worthy of our worship, worthy of our service, worthy of all we can give him. He is a God whose presence gives us assurance. The Lord knows what is happening in the, His churches, for He is continually among them. Thanks for watching this episode of Through the Word. When Jesus revealed Himself to John, He pointed to His identity as the first and the last, the, the living one. He also pointed to the work He accomplished while on earth defeating death and hell through his crucifixion and resurrection. The same Jesus who was once crucified in shame is the Jesus who is now exalted in glory. 
Can I share with you some good news? It is that Jesus came to live the perfect, sinless life that you could not live. He died the sinner's death that you deserve. But he defeated both sin and death by rising from the dead. And you can be saved from your sins by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Are you ready to give your life to Jesus? If so, will you pray this prayer with me? The words will be here on the screen. Dear God, I am a sinner and I want to be forgiven. I believe Jesus Christ, your son, died for my sins and is alive right now. I turn away from my sin and now confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and receive him into my life. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to control my life, and I thank you for giving me eternal life. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, would you reach out to me? Maybe you have some questions about what it means to follow Jesus. Hey, get in touch. Go to our website at cbcmaysville.com forward slash connect. I want to connect with you and to send you some free resources to help you to know what it looks like to follow Jesus. And if you enjoyed this episode, would you please share it so that others can experience God's Word? Next week's episode of Through the Word is titled, The Redeemer Calls His People Toward Renewal. We will see that Jesus calls His people to recognize their sin repent of it, and remember what He has in store for those who persevere unto the end. Well, Lord willing, I will see you next Thursday for Through the Word. Until then, God bless.